Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Today, I have a really interesting guest for you. It's Brian Kaplan. He's an economics professor, and he's a homeschooling dad, and he doesn't really buy into unschooling, and he's really numbers-oriented. And his new book, The Case Against Education, is one of the most interesting books that I've read in a long time. He makes an incredibly devastating case against the idea that schools build real skills. But he also makes a very powerful case for signaling, which is showing employers that you have a certain work ethic, that you can complete tasks when assigned, and that you can conform in a very pure sense. And so our conversation goes many places. We don't see eye to eye on everything, but it's definitely worth listening to. And if you like it, read my article that I wrote about Brian's book. It's online on the Alliance for Self-Directed Education website, and the title is called Hail the Almighty Diploma. Put that into Google and you will find it. Now, without further ado, here's Brian. I'm here with Brian Kaplan, a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of three books, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. Brian, thanks for being on my show. Very glad to be here. So I have known about you for a long time. I follow your blog on EconLog. And about five years ago, that's when I saw you really start digging into the argument for signaling, both at the high school and the college level. And that actually helped inform uh, some of the arguments in a book that I wrote called Better Than College, uh, where I argued that you can make an alternative signal to the high school and the college diploma, which is something I want to talk to you about today. Um, And there's a lot to discuss because your book is, it's deep and fascinating and it's thick. It's not an easy read. And what I want to focus on today is is your arguments about signaling and specifically about how non-conventional learners can send signals to future employers or college admissions people that are as effective or sometimes better than the ones that come from traditional education. Okay. And a lot of these arguments come from an article that I wrote um, about your piece on the Alliance for Self-Directed Education uh, about Mm -hmm. your book. So I want to start with a a recap for those who are not familiar with the book about just the distinction between skill building and signaling. And I want to stick Mm -hmm. to the the K to 12 level right now. And so can you just give give me a quick intro into what you see as the distinction between skill building and signaling uh, for elementary school, middle school, high school years? Uh, sure. So there's a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence that education raises your income in the labor market and makes it easier for you to get a good job. But there's a serious question about why. The conventional story is that you go to school and they pour skills into you, and then when you're done, you've learned the skills and you take them and sell them in the labor market and you do well because of that. And you know, this definitely happens to some extent. So literacy and numeracy are useful skills and they're important. Uh, but Uh, There's another possible reason why education might pay, and this is that you might be signaling. You might be jumping through a bunch of hoops to show off, to convince employers that you're worthwhile. You're basically getting a bunch of stickers on your forehead. And it's possible that you might signal by studying a bunch of subjects that you'll never use on the job. But the mere fact that you did well on those subjects could still impress employers and convince them that they would be well advised to hire you. Right, uh, And this is really the heart of the whole book, is to say that a, a big part of the reason why school pays is because of the latter story, that you are jumping through hoops to impress employers. And then the reason why the book is called The Case Against Education is that 
from a selfish point of view, it doesn't really matter very much why education pays, but from taxpayers' point of view, it matters tremendously because if taxpayers are paying for workers to get more skills, basically they are paying so that you can contribute more to society and do well as a result. But if what's going on is that you're getting more stickers in your forehead, well, if everybody gets lots of stickers, the result isn't that we get a rich society. The result is that you just need a lot of stickers to be deemed worthy of employment. So basically, with the signaling model, your education is a path for individual success, but not for social success. Whereas if education is teaching useful skills, then it's a path to both. And so when you're talking about signaling, you're talking about three big uh, things. One is intelligence, which we might Uh generalize to be IQ. The second Uh is diligence, Mm -hmm. or we might call that work ethic or conscientiousness. And the third is conformity, which Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to get into that one a little bit right now, because that's that's a touchy word for a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. you relate it to being able to work on a team, uh, being able to essentially do something that you are not that interested in doing, just because that's what somebody wants you to do. What else does conformity mean? I mean, follow orders and not make other people feel awkward and uncomfortable not to have to be told what's okay and what's not okay. You know, a real conformist person just knows what you can say and what you can't say. You don't have to receive a lecture because the lecture is often uncomfortable to give, right? You know, imagine giving someone the official lecture on gender relations in the workplace. In itself, it's an uncomfortable thing to do. You're just hoping to hire someone who just already knows what is okay and what is not okay. That's right. And you say in the book that you know, we all know what appropriate dress is, or at least an employer will only hire someone who knows what mm-hmm. a certain level of appropriate yeah. dress or grooming is. Uh, and that's something that everyone, regardless of how outlandish their educational philosophy, I think intuitively grasps. You know, mm-hmm. if you walk into yeah. into your first day of work naked, then that will be your last day of work. <laughs> uh, and so you can have homeschoolers and unschoolers and other people who are who are all about not doing things the traditional way, but they understand that a certain level of conformity is required for any job, for any mm-hmm. you know societal yeah. you know functioning. Yeah, because you're, um, you're part of it. You're part of a team. You know, there's no I a team. It's a classic line, but there's something to it. So um, that's what signaling is. It's essentially mm-hmm. a big stamp of approval that says mm-hmm. I am capable of working hard, of focusing, of doing what I'm told. And I, I will do the best job I can with whatever task you give me. Is mm-hmm. that a reasonable summary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so again, I would say it's not so much that you're capable as that you are, in fact, likely to do so. And, you know, you don't really have to convince people you'll do the very best. You know, it's just like, I'll do good enough. I'll be acceptable anyway. So, again, of course, you'd like to send the stronger signal of I'm awesome. But, you know, most people get hired without convincing anyone they're awesome. They just get hired saying, well, like, he'll do. Yeah, and so you dig into why skills are not really something that that uh, K through twelve schooling typically build in a meaningful way, and mm-hmm. I think that these arguments have a lot of friends uh, on uh, on the ed- educational critique side. And you know, we've been saying this for years. It's like most kids are wasting their time mm-hmm. in school, and they're not learning anything meaningful. I, I believe there's a, a yeah. distinction to be made between uh, you know skills that are going to be relevant to a job, mm-hmm. what job you imagine you're going to have later in life. And then there's the, the generalized learning skills. But you say even generalized skills of critical thinking, of learning how to learn, that those uh, that the data doesn't back up uh, the argument that no matter what someone is being taught or no matter what they're mm-hmm. learning, that there's some sort of transfer happening. Right. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, the generalized skills that I think you can credit schools with teaching are literacy and numeracy, and those are actually useful in almost anything. But yeah, there is a 
common view among educators and parents and you know, maybe even some employers saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you study because whatever you study, you're still building mental muscles, you're still learning how to think, you're still building critical reasoning. So anyway, so these are interesting claims, but they're not obviously true. You know, if an historian says it may appear that what I'm teaching you is not useful in the job, but just you wait, you might want to regard that with some skepticism and say, yeah, well, of course he's going to say that because he doesn't want to admit how useless this stuff really is. Anyway, there's a whole field of uh, research called educational psychology where they have studied these issues at great length for about a century. Uh, these are the kind of the people who do this research, educational psychologists, very desperately want there to be a lot of learning how to learn. And yet the general view among people who work in this area is there's very little actual learning how to learn. Most learning is highly specific. Even when there is logically a connection between two subjects, usually people do not psychologically see the connection, and so it doesn't actually make much difference in the real world. So again, really, like in order, you know, most people actually get good at things not by studying anything, and then they get good at everything. Rather, people get good at what good at what they do through direct, concrete, specific practice, and that is the real success to being good at what you do. That being said, the kind of stuff that's being concretely practiced in most, let's just say, high school situations, (laughs) you also make the argument that there's very little long-term retention. Uh, Oh, that's right. So, meaning for literacy and numeracy, there at least, you know, it's quite possible that people do have long-run retention. I mean, it's it's still pretty disappointing to see how many people don't learn literacy and numeracy very well in school, but still, you know, like two-thirds are pretty good. But yeah, for almost all the other subjects, when you go and look at what adults know, uh, it's really just a rounding error. It's almost nothing, right? Which could mean that they never learned anything about it, or it could be that they learned it for the final exam and then forgot about it. Either way, there's no reason why employers should be paying you for what you don't know anymore. And uh, in the book, I go over all the main subjects that are taught in school besides literacy and numeracy. Uh, so, you know, like a you know, really easy one is foreign language. In U.S. schools, totally standard to require two or three years of foreign language. Uh, and then I found data on the share of Americans who even claim to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school, and it's under 1% of the population, which again, like, what's striking about it is under 1% of the U.S. population claims to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school after spending two to three years on it. It's not like they spent three weeks and they don't run any good. That would be no surprise. But you spend years and seem to walk away with no usable foreign language skills. And again, we can see the same thing for knowledge of government, history, you know, civics, uh, science, in all these areas, like when you just go and ask random American adults uh, basic questions, you know, a pretty good rule of thumb is they'll get about half of the very simplest questions correct, which I say is basically the same as knowing half the letters in the alphabet. If you know half the letters in the alphabet, what 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 are you? Uh, incompetent. Illiterate. Okay. <laughs> you oh. cannot read. <laughs> if you know half the letters in the alphabet, you are illiterate. You're not half literate. You're illiterate. <laughs> and I say this is a good way of thinking about the knowledge of history, civics, foreign language, science, and science that the typical American adult has. They just don't know really anything. So that's one of the, the main arguments that drew me into this field, Brian, is that so much of young people's time is wasted. And the foreign language example is, is uh, spot on. Just two or three years of doing this and you have nothing to show for it. Like truly, your time has been wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you had some experience that can translate in that that Spanish class, but probably not. It's just a waste of sure. of your time and and human capital. Um, and just to finish talking about skills versus signaling, you bring in some really great examples 
of um, of why signaling is important and why it's real. And the first one is the sheepskin effect, uh, which essentially says the graduation uh-huh. year of high school and the graduation year of a four-year university uh, degree is worth financially so much more, multiple times more than the other years combined sometimes in the case of, of college. And there's there's no way to explain uh-huh. that reasonably if, that's right. if each year is a steady progression of skill building. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean... I was saying, you know, so like, you know, like you would have to imagine that people are saving the useful job skills for senior year. So it's like three years of high school. Oh, we, all right, now it's senior year. Now we're going to crack open the, the the vocational stuff. And again, like, you know, there's like not only is there no sign of that, but if you've gone to American schools, you know, senior year is goof off year, not finally learn some job skills year. You also talk about would you rather have a Princeton education or a Princeton degree? And I think that's like. That is the question to ask as a thought experiment for the the signaling power of a degree. And I I asked this to my Facebook community, which has a lot of very self-educated, self-directed people. And it was really split. And a lot of people who grew up being totally unschooled, never going to school, uh, you know, questioning the system, they said, I'll take the degree. Thank you very much. Um, you know, and why is that? <laughs> yeah. And what I say is, that, you know, the very fact that someone has to think about it really shows that I'm right. Because if you even are there saying, well, I don't know, would I rather have a piece of paper or a pile of knowledge? It's like, oh, I mean, the very fact that you're deliberating between those two means that you believe signaling is really important, which is you know, the fundamental controversial thesis of my book. I was, you know, I was pointing out, you know, if you were stuck on an island all by yourself and, so, and you were wondering, well, would I rather have a degree in boat building or knowledge of boat building? It would, it, there it is a no-brainer. It's like, obviously, I need knowledge of boat building. Who cares about a piece of paper? But the way that people approach uh, their education is not like there. They're at least, they say, hmm, which is more important, the degree or the education? And just the very fact that you have to wonder about it shows a lot. You also bring up that students uh, are happy when classes are canceled, when uh, a professor mm-hmm. is known to give easy A's, uh, just the fact that cheating is so rampant. If mm-hmm. school was really about skill building, then uh, these would not be you know, such prevalent truths in our uh, society mm-hmm. uh, yet they are and and it's because as you say in the book if class is canceled kind of everyone uh you know from a signaling perspective everyone is still at the same level and from a skill building building perspective you've you've lost out and so it's an argument for signaling yeah exactly so yeah, i mean you know, basically of course employers don't know that you had a professor who canceled classes frequently and so they're just going to treat the a as like any other a but it's a way for you to get the approval of employers without having to do the same work as everybody else. So good deal. So your book goes many other places. Uh, you calculate the, the selfish return, the, the personal financial return to completing various levels of education based upon how good of a student you are. Uh, you control for all of these factors, which people don't talk about uh, for ability bias, which mm-hmm. just means essentially your, your raw talent or your IQ, uh, your family background, uh, many other factors. And then you go into the social return. And this is all stuff that's super interesting. But here's what I want to focus on, Brian, which is, um, so we've got this fundamental problem, which is that signaling is real. It matters. And employers mm-hmm. and college missions people care about it. Uh, but also, uh, it's kind of a fraud. And if you spend your whole time in high school, just to be a, a strong signal and you're not actually building any meaningful skills along the way, like that's that's a really bad uh, equation. And so I want to talk about what an individual can do to 
actually build some skills during the high school years and also retain a signal. And and I want to talk about this, first of all, from the perspective of your own family and the fact that you have two boys who are now in in ninth grade and they just finished two years of uh, homeschooling in middle school. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. You did a great podcast with your boys about what the, uh, the, the Kaplan family school was all about. And it sounds like you really focused on math and history and economics, and it was very academics oriented. They got to hang out with a lot of your, oh, yeah. your fellow professors. And, and so it was kind of like traditional homeschooling, but it was also not. You didn't feel compelled to just stick with the, uh, the state curriculum for those years. Um, but you were pretty clear in your writing on EconLog that this was going to end when middle school ended and that it was going to be time to go back to high school. What was the reason for, for feeling so strongly that they need to go back to high school? Well, I mean, so there were, there were two issues. So one is the, that uh, for middle school, I just know that no one knows what you, do, what you did in middle school. So I wasn't worried about the negative signal. Uh, but you know, the second one, honestly, was my wife and she just want, uh, didn't like the idea of them being homeschooled for the whole time. So, uh, she she had veto power, and she said uh, that they're going back. So, I um, mean, this was a case really all we could do was just go with the flow and see what happened. Uh, as it turned out, three weeks in uh, ninth grade uh, accomplished what I could not, which has changed my life's mind. Uh, so uh, now we're back doing homeschooling again. But you know, like you know, as someone who thinks signaling a lot, I mean, I was very concerned that I'd be hurting my kids' prospects and their future and hurting their college admission a lot by doing homeschooling. So middle school, I didn't worry about it very much. But once I was at least contemplating, maybe we could keep doing it in high school. That's when I started contacting, uh, you know, like uh, academic researchers on homeschooling, people who had no dog in the fight, and just say like, how much discrimination do you think there is against homeschoolers these days? And again, the usual answer that I got was back in the '80s there might have been a lot, but now it's there's enough homeschoolers we've reached critical mass, and now schools do not penalize you much anyway for being a homeschooler as long as you've got other measures of your accomplishments. And what are some of those other measures? Uh, well, obviously, SAT scores or you know ACT scores. And then uh, for me and my kids, uh, advanced placement tests played a big role. So you know, these are normally tests that are given to advanced high school students to get college credit for classes and also to impress colleges. And you know, we did our first one in seventh grade. We did U.S. history in seventh grade, and we got top scores on that. And then in eighth grade, we did European history and microeconomics and macroeconomics. We did three tests then. And then uh, this year, we got three more tests that we're doing next month. We're going to be doing uh, calculus AB, world history, and U.S. government. Uh, so you basically got a plan that by the time that we are, apply, are applying to college, uh, we'll have 13 AP tests under our belts. And I think that's going to look pretty good. Yeah, I think 13 AP tests will look pretty good. And it's very clear from the podcast that you did with your boys that they are very academically oriented. They seem to want to become college professors. Mm -hmm. And so that's very appropriate for their, <laughs> yeah. for their path. You know, do as much academic signaling mm -hmm. as you can. And as you mentioned, there, there are many ways today to do that signaling that are outside of just getting a degree or a high school diploma. And... <clears throat> This is something I've noticed with a lot of the homeschoolers who I've worked with, which is that even though they would technically be put into the high school dropout category of, of the mm -hmm. data that you cite in the book, you know, they go on to be, you know, when I say successful, <clears throat> I don't mean successful in the sense of like Bill Gates, wildly successful, but successful mm -hmm. in the sure, sense sure. Of, of a kind of 
meeting the same targets that other kids in their same social class would be expected to hit. But, but this is not something that you would mm-hmm. expect from your book, where you say, if you don't have this signal, then you are screwed. And so how do you reconcile that? Right. So, so again, I mean, a lot of whether or not you are screwed without a signal just depends upon what, you know, like, what, you know, so what is the inference that people draw? So again, if you're the first person that does homeschooling, then I think you are pretty screwed. Then I think at least you would have to be 10 times as good to do half as well. Right, which I think probably a lot of homeschoolers have some feeling. This is is the way. Even now, they like there's they have to be, do very well in order to be considered acceptable. Uh, but you know, like you know, it's something where like when you reach critical mass, when a lot of people are doing it, then the signal that you that you send by doing something unconventional just doesn't show as much about you. I'll give you a say, like like on my blog, I have talked about research on how homeschoolers do by conventional measures of success. And there, you know, in terms of academic performance, usual result is they probably do a little bit better on reading and a little bit worse on math. So again, the people that you're talking to may, of course, be be outliers. Um, in terms of like like data on how how homeschoolers actually wind up doing on average in the labor market, I don't know that I've ever actually seen any really good data on that. So no, maybe, the, maybe you could point it, it me in exist. that direction. No, unfortunately, I wish I could, but uh, right. all, pretty much yes. all the studies about homeschooling, yeah. unschooling, it's all anecdotal. It's all survey-based. Uh, there's no mm-hmm. controls. And, right. so, and so, no, we, we really don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see you know, occasional stories of homeschooled kids getting into Harvard, and it, mm-hmm. it's very easy to write those off as exceptional cases. And so it is, it's a big black box. Stuff. Yeah. And, and, and again, I mean, if you do look at those homeschooling kids getting, get homeschooling kids getting into Harvard, usually it's because they've done something incredible. Right, so usually it's because you know they've won a contest or something like that, where you know, like like you know so they have, you know they've done something that is that really makes them stand out. Uh, so and again, like like for my own kids, that's a big part of what we're thinking about is how can we really shine? Again, it's in terms of uh, like like having academic performance that's just at a level that you really just can't do in a regular school. So again, like that, like by the time we graduate, we should actually have like sixteen APs APs done. Which um, I think so. You know, I'm not sure about this, but I think you know there is actually a special AP prize for having more tests done than anyone else in your state. And I feel like it's very realistic for my kids to tie for the number one slot in that. So I think that looks pretty good. Like you know, we do more than anyone else in the state of Virginia, which is not a small state. I, you know, maybe maybe there's someone else that's going to beat us. I don't know. It's hard to find out. <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah, but um, you know, but, but then you know, like in terms of other things. So you know, like we've been thinking about extracurriculars and other things that we can do to really stand it out and prevent, and you know, basically to for, to take away excuses that colleges would have to say no, you know, to say, well, look, yeah, sure, they've done great at academics. What else have they done? And so you know, we have some uh, plans that we're hatching. So actually, you know, I've been talking to my kids about uh, setting up you know, a history podcast where they'll go and interview historians and. You know, they've been meeting a lot of historians, so I think you know, I think that they that, that that could work out really well for them. So at least that's one idea that we may try. And that's pretty representative of what non-conventional teenagers do. They they kind of work on creative projects, they follow their interests, while also mm-hmm. making sure that they mm-hmm. check off the boxes necessary to. Uh, you know, usually they're thinking about how mm-hmm. to get into college, and uh, I'd say that the majority are not as right. academically motivated or oriented as your sons appear to be. Mm-hmm. And so for yeah. a lot of them, that might yeah, just no, mean... Nor, 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 should, nor should people be. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, they, they <laughs> yeah. are definitely yeah, outliers. Yeah, like this this is a great path for a very certain kind of person. It's not the one path. Well, uh, here's a question I want to throw at you. Uh, if your sons were not so academically oriented or inclined, 
if they had more wide-ranging interests, if their interests were shifting, maybe at, you know half a, every half a year or every year, um, would you still feel as comfortable homeschooling? Right. Uh, so, I mean, for me, the main uh, the main the main cutoff is: Are you responsible enough to do your own work without me having to monitor you? Okay. So, I mean, like you know, so I do almost all the homeschooling, and I you know take them to my office with me. So. If the kid actually was a dis- was a discipline problem, so I couldn't do my job, then that would be a deal breaker. And again, for me, the other deal breaker is does the kid want to do homeschooling? So homeschooling is not nothing that I would ever ram down someone's throat. If a kid said, "I just want to be a regular kid and go to regular school," I mean, I, like to be honest, I'd be kind of disappointed. But I would still say, "Well, you know, like you know, if that's what you want to do, I'm not here. To, you know, this is you know for you, not for me." And so I, you know, I would I would not make them do that. But yeah, if the kid just had you know like, like other interests, but they were well behaved and they wanted to be homeschooled, then I just design a very different curriculum for them. And, you know, like for all these cases, there are some things where I think that, you know, even if the kid finds it boring, it still is so helpful and opens up so many doors that it's worth doing. So if there's a kid who just didn't like math, I would still say, sorry, you have to do math because you are cutting yourself off from a long list of attractive jobs if you don't learn math. But on the other hand, if you know, if there's someone who had no interest in history, I wouldn't make them learn history. There's someone with no interest in economics. I wouldn't even make them learn economics. So much as that breaks my heart to think of a child of mine that doesn't like economics. But. <laughs> uh, so really, you think that literacy and numeracy, uh, so being able to read well, write well, and be able to do basic math, although we can talk about what basic means, that's the non-negotiable mm-hmm. stuff to mm-hmm. you. But you're not going to force your kid to learn economics in the way that uh, a school is going to. Yeah, when I meet homeschooling, like adult homeschoolers who can't do fractions, that's where... You know, I'm, I'm not saying their lives are ruined or anything, but I do think you, know, you took this too far, right? You got to learn fractions. Come yeah. on. Where, where do you draw the line in math in terms of uh, what's what's mm-hmm. important? Because in the book, you say that algebra is widely uh, applicable, but calculus right. is not. And, and I don't know if I buy right. that. I don't know if, if algebra mm-hmm. is widely applicable. I'd say fractions are for sure. Right. Again, so well, again, like, you know, a lot of it depends upon what kind of a you know, what kind of kid you got. So, you know, like you're not, you know, like, like, so al- like algebra, you might actually use algebra, like, you know, even in construction, like any, t- any kind, any time that you're doing anything in business, just figuring out what, like, what is the amount of, uh, of cans of Coke that we need in order to uh, like, like actually achieve the goal. Like, you know, like very basic stuff like that. I know you don't use the quadratic formula very often in the real world, but just being able to do some linear equations, things like that. Something where you know, like you know, it seems like at least a quarter of jobs, stuff like that, comes up on on occasion. Um, again, the other thing is just in terms of jobs you might want to have. There's a lot of jobs where you need to learn a lot more math even to be in the running, even if you don't use them very much. So, you know, if there were a kid that had the capability of learning calculus, I'd be very strongly inclined to say, look, we got to do this because you don't know that you don't want to go and be an engineer or a CS person, and you know, if you decide that you do want to do those things and you just haven't done calculus, uh, you know, you know, like it's, it'll take years for you to make up that gap. You know, if there were a kid that just really resisted, then I'd probably say, fine, we'll just, we'll just stop. And I guess you're just not going to have a, have a chance to have those jobs. But, you know, the minimum I wanted to go and give the kid a tour of all the options that they're giving up if they don't want to learn something. So I'd like to run a line of reasoning by you, which is prevalent in the homeschooling and unschooling community, which is that if you let a kid focus deeply 
on what they're interested in, and you don't prejudge what those interests are, then they will gain this meta-learning capacity to be a focused learner, mm-hmm. which is something you mentioned earlier. As long as the kid can like focus and work, then that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's signaling some pretty good diligence right there. Um, and so this is a line of reasoning that a lot of families use to say, well, you know, I'm uncomfortable with my kid, it's often my son, uh, playing video games full-time <laughs> as, uh, as a homeschooler, but they seem to be highly focused and highly engaged in that. And I'm, I'm banking on the fact that when they decide, when they realize that, uh, oh my gosh, all my friends are going to college, I want to go to college too, I need to catch up on math, they will be able to take that laser focus meta-learning skill that they've developed and aim it uh, to jump through the hoops to learn what they need to learn in order to uh, to attain this this further goal. And so, do you do you buy that? No, I mean, like I think almost any educational psychologist who heard that would say that's mostly wishful thinking. It's true that there are some people who will reach a certain age and then they will get their act together. But again, the idea that the reason they got their act together is because they were allowed to spend a lot of time honing their video game skills seems wrong. It's just maturity. Like you know, some people with maturity will start doing that. So you know, like, like you know, the way that learning like works in the real world is that you get good at what you practice, and you don't get good at what you don't practice, and there's just not much uh, general general gen- generalizability. Uh, so you know, like you know, so like, like even from one video game to another, there's not going to be that much. The fact that you do really well in a first-person shooter doesn't mean that you're going to do well in a flight simulator, right? So and again, to a large extent, you just start over, uh, like when when you move from one video game to another. Much less from like I've been doing video games, and now I'm going to be do really good at math. Yeah, so you know, I mean, I mean, there is sort of there is a certain kind of homeschooler where they just say, look, whatever it is that they like doing, that it, by definition is is the accomplishment that we're looking for. Um, you know, so that kind of sounds good, although it's something where I'd be, you know, like I could easily see a parent being nervous that the kid is just not going to ever become independent or self-supporting. Yeah, so I see you know the main thing is you know at minimum just let you know, let the kid know, look, you know, there's hardly any jobs for video, for professional video game players, and you ought to know that. And just playing games doesn't doesn't give you much ability to write them or do something where there actually are more opportunities uh, for you know for uh, for a career. And then just reminding people, you know, the fact that you really enjoy something doesn't mean that you can do that for a living. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> right, that's just, that's just the real world. There's a lot of things that are fun that no one will pay you to do, or maybe only five people on Earth can be paid to do, and you're probably not one of them. And you know, we should go and plan for the situation where you are not one of the five top people in the world. And take that into account. So, would you say that there's a difference here between consumption and production, and that somebody who just consumes video games all day—that's you're saying that's very unlikely—that's going to lead to transferable mm-hmm. skills. But whereas, if somebody right. who who takes that interest and turns it into, I'm going to learn how to code my own app. I'm going to make my own mm-hmm. game. I'm going yeah, to yeah, exactly. take a make a podcast and interview professional gamers about how they how they make their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. That 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 has a more of a chance of creating these real world skills and competencies in the long run? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, there's one approach where you just think about only what you like, and there's another one where you try to look at what the world is buying as well as what you're selling and then try to come up with some compromise between the two. Yeah, so, you know, like I'm not someone that would want to advise a kid just to do something they don't like just to, just to have a job, but I would say, well, look, you know, out of the realm of things that you could get paid for doing and that, you know, you're like, what, what out of that appeals to you, Right. And again, you know, so like like what I what I've often said is, you know, everything is skill building for somebody. There are professional video game players; they do exist. It is a job, and there's some really successful people who do it. But 
it's such a long shot for most people. It's one where you have to be one of the best people on earth in order to actually make you know do it for a living. So that's one where comes and you know the wisdom of the ages has always been at least have a backup plan. So Brian, you are a homeschooling dad. You and your sons actually kind of snickered at the label unschooling in the podcast that you did because that's just not not something you would consider yourself to be. And I usually have more uh, unschooling type people on this on this podcast, and so I'd like to learn a little bit more mm-hmm. about your approach to homeschooling, uh, what the ninth grade homeschooling year is looking like for your sons, and and maybe how your uh, your approach as a homeschool teacher is different from your approach as a university professor. Uh, sure. Uh, so, I mean, you know, like for me, I mean, I just start with what you know, what my kids actually want to do and what they're interested in. So, and and you know, also like what my kids' complaints about regular school were. So, my kids went to regular school for K through six, and again, their complaints were you know, like super boring, not challenging, full of touchy feely stuff that they really resented. You know, like, like you know, just like wasting their time. And so, you know, really what they wanted was like a very intense academically focused curriculum. And so that's what I, you know, I work with them to design. And so, you know, like our first year, we, you know, we just started doing algebra and we went through algebra, geometry, and then got to algebra two by the end of seventh grade. So we just put a lot of time into that, doing lots of practice. And then we're also, we were doing, uh, you know, advanced placement U.S. history because they seemed very interested in history. And I knew from, you know, when I was in 11th grade, I did this test, and I thought it was just a really good test, one where it actually, you have to have a deep understanding of the subject in order to do well, and it's one where it also has a very heavy writing component, so it's a great chance to teach writing, right? And the way that I taught them generally is, you know, I, so, I mean, I, I made up a curriculum for them. I selected textbooks that I thought were, were, were not just, you know, like, you know, informative, but also interesting and entertaining, engaging. And then normally I would just go and you know, bring them to my office with me and just have them do their work. And you know, like I would give them almost, and basically I would almost never give a lecture. Instead, I would just say, you know, here's the work. And then if you have a question, first talk to each other, then Google, and then come to me. Right. So those three layers. Yeah. And then the main kind of time that I put into their education was on writing feedback. So again, like, like you know, so for, you know, for, so whenever they would write an essay, then I would do very fine-tuned grading, and I would, you know, for each essay, I would have them both sit down so they can both see how uh, you know not only their own work at critique, but also the work of their brother, because you know they're they're identical twins, by the way, so that makes things a lot simpler in many ways, right? So I mean, like, you know, like in that first year, I think we did like fifty different essays uh, each, and we just you know like it was like you know a giant pile of work that they did. And, you know, this was enough, I thought, you know, to really teach writing right now, again, like, so normally just studying history, I don't think does not teach writing, but we were so writing intensive. I think they actually did get a lot of good general writing skills out of all, out of all of it. And then the other thing is that I, you know, so I didn't bother giving grades. I would usually give weekly tests, but just to let us know where we were, right. To see like, you know, have we actually successfully mastered this material or not? And then if we haven't, then we go back and work on it some more. And if we have, then we move on. So, yeah, I say my kids were also pretty nervous test takers. And so in regular school, they would be unhappy like every time there's a test. But then, you know, this was a good way to get them to be, feel relaxed and to say, look, this is just for to inform us. This is not to go and form a judgment of you. And I say, you know, I like the, and again, the real judgment will come at the end, like when we do these end of year tests, which we then can go and, you know, and some outsider will go and evaluate us rather than us. Right. Yeah, and I think the, in terms of just the their peace of mind, tests. just having yes. 
one, one, you know, like big tests at the end. Yeah, you know, big tests at the end of the year. They like they cope with that much better. Of course, they're very nervous uh, at that time, but at least they're not nervous every single week, right? And so anyway, so and then you know this worked really well for us in seventh grade. So we did just you know like basically a you know, very similar version of this in eighth grade, uh, except we moved up to three AP tests. Also, I, I had them take uh, you know each year I had them take one of my undergraduate classes and just you know, unofficially. So you know, like in my seventh grade, I had my brought my kids to labor economics, and they just took labor economics like any other kid in the class. And in eighth grade, I had them do my public choice class again, like any other kid in the class. Uh, so ninth grade, the main difference is that now I have them officially enrolled as uh, high school students at George Mason. So they're able to take uh, college Spanish here because I didn't feel capable of teaching them that. Again, you know, the main contrast between how I teach my kids and how I teach my classes. So I still teach my regular classes by lecture method. I mean, for the I mean, for for most of my college students, just saying like, come here and do your work, and if you have a question, come up to me. Again, you know, I think that, you know the students would just not respond to that very well. Um, and then, you know, like in terms of the level of detailed feedback, again, I don't think the students would be very interested, but also it would be an incredible amount of work for me if I were giving 50, 50 essays per student per year. Uh, that would basically eat up all of my time. I wouldn't be able to do anything else. Yeah, of course. Uh, but, you know, you know, like, you know, if a student really wants feedback, it's one thing. But if the student doesn't even feel like getting the feedback and they don't even want to improve, as I think you know, most, most college students are not that interested in getting a detailed critique of their writing so they can hone the scale. You know, again, it's you know, it's one thing to give up a lot of time for someone who appreciates it, another for someone who just is rolling their eyes and is trying to weasel out of it. Um, but yeah, but you know, but you know, like just like like you know, very low reliance upon uh, lectures uh, for you know for my kids versus for my students. You know, it, it is mostly the lecture method, and you know, and then uh, in, ter- in terms of you know, the actual you know, like like you know, I, I, for my own kids, we you know, do a lot more learning you know, learning by doing. So again, like. I mean, I will say, I honestly, I don't think I've ever learned math from a lecture. It's always uh-huh. you know, like the lecture. I like uh-huh. it. Like it's just too hard for to understand. I learn by doing problems. And so you don't sound like as tyrannical a homeschooler as uh, some might smear you to be. And uh, that's that's a nice thing. <laughs> it sounds like you are starting with your kids' interests, and uh, you're at least outsourcing the oh, yeah. amount of the, the testing to these these very objective indicators like the mm-hmm. advanced placement test. Um, which are also directly relevant. Right, right, right. To and, you know, and a lot of it is, you know, I've, I've tried to pick tests. You know, yeah, I mean, I've tried to pick tests that I think are really good. So, I mean, in general, like you know, like on teaching the test, should you do that or shouldn't you? And my view is, if the test is really good, then it's okay to teach the test mm, because the test, like the only way to teach the test is to actually achieve mastery. Again, you know, teaching the test where there's just a hundred facts to know and you just teach those hundred facts and you're done. Those tests seem really stupid to me, and I wouldn't want to teach those tests. Uh, you know, like if there's a lot riding on it, then I might do it anyway. Just like, well, God, we got to do this stupid thing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, again, like you know, like you know, like most people would go and look at the schedule that I use for my kids, would just think that I'm riding them very hard. But you know, like honestly, if you ask them when I'm out of the room, that's not how they feel about it. And you know, like you know, they they're very comfortable telling me like you know like what what their feelings about what they're doing, what they think is 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 worthwhile and what isn't. Um, so you know, like I mean, like honestly, like they would they would be unhappy if they either were just if I just went very easy on them, they wouldn't be happy with that. They just feel like they're wasting their time, and you know, like they definitely don't want they they just don't like the idea of unschooling. They want there to be a discipline, discipline and a and a schedule, and they and they you know like, like honestly, you know, they value my guidance. So when I say like I think this is something that's going to be worthwhile for you, um, 
you know, like I mean, I mean, honestly, like as a parent, I've put, I've invested a lot into having a great reputation for candor. So you know, like like I'm the kind of dad where if a kid says, "Does that food taste good?" I'll just say, "No, it doesn't taste good." Right, <laughs> and yeah. this means when my kids see when when I say that the food does taste good, they believe me, right? And you know, because like it's just you know, like it's very hard for them to think in cases where I have you know deceived them, or even where I just told them something that seems very out of whack with their own experience, and so like they just consider me very reliable, and you know, and you know, I feel like I put a lot of effort into building up this uh, this ironclad reputation. You know, I never breathe a word about Santa Claus to them. I didn't actually <laughs> contradict the other adults, but I was never part of the. I, I never participated in the lie, right? And okay. you know, my kids know this. Yeah, I mean, like, like you know, can, candor first is a big deal for me. And and that's the foundation of of all successful homeschooling is like a, a strong, respectful, you know, consensual parent-child relationship. And so it seems like you're you're definitely aware mm-hmm. of that. Um, here's a hypothetical question for you, Brian. So a lot of homeschooling families mm-hmm. experience uh, some methods or approaches working for a few years, and then they all of a sudden stop working. And so let's say your, mm-hmm. your boys did a bunch of the AP tests. They just knocked it out of the park, fives across the board, and then decided, you know what? Mm-hmm. We've We've done a lot of good work and a lot of hard work preparing academically, and we want to take a couple years, let's say sophomore and junior year of high school, uh, to go do like totally non-academic stuff since we feel we're, we're pretty prepared for uh, college admissions. Maybe some travel, maybe some language learning, maybe some light, light volunteering, stuff that still feels productive and constructive to you as a, as a dad, but is totally non-academic. How would you react to that? Hmm. I mean, so for my kids, I would just say, well, uh, have you changed what your final goal is? And, you know, like, do you still want, you know, like, do you still want to be economics professors? Right. And, you know, like, well, not, not to judge them, just say, you know, so say, look, you know, if you want to be an economics professor, then this is not a, a, an effective way of doing it. And you are going to be really hurting yourself. And, you know, like, it won't make it impossible, but you are going from, a really promising trajectory to a long shot trajectory. So at least you want to know that. But and in this you know, premise, so you know, if they say, yeah, I still have my mind. I just want to, yeah, I want to do like, like, so I know the college system pretty well. Like having a bunch of fives in ninth and 10th grades is not enough. If you don't do any, if you suddenly stop doing academics in 11th and 12th grades, I think very, very few good schools will be interested in, in you. And again, you know, like academia is super snobby. Right. So, I mean, I don't sugarcoat anything about my own job to my kids. I say, you know what? There's a bunch of stupid hoops you have to jump through and a bunch of unfair stuff you're going to have to deal with. And I just think you ought to know. And if that sounds uh, horrible to you, then we need to find another another career option for you. Mm-hmm. you know, so if they, uh, you know, again, like, you know, like, well, I think your scenario, I think what I, what I would say is, well, let's go and strike a happy medium. We can go and cut back, say, by a third in the normal stuff we're doing. And I think we'll still be able to look, look very good. And this will free up a lot of time for these other things. But, uh, you know, it's going, to, it's going to be a big mistake if we just go and stop doing AP tests entirely. Then it's going to look like something went wrong with us and, like, we turned into slackers. And I think that's going to really hurt us for all mission. And, of course, if you just have a totally new plan that you want to do, then I say, all right, well, all right, let's, what's your new plan? And let's try to look into that and see whether your strategy is viable for that. Hmm. And so what if the plan did change? What if they moved the goals uh, and said, you know what, econ professor... Uh, we we realized we're just following in your footsteps, Dad, and that uh, you know I want to be a musician, <laughs> and my brother wants to, gosh, I don't know, like ride you know motorbikes. Uh, what happens then in in the hmm. the Kaplan family homeschool? Yeah. Hmm. 
I guess I would start with saying, hmm, all right, you want to be a musician, but you never played an instrument? Why don't we just go and take one class and see what happens? Okay, so you would follow their interests. <laughs> so, I mean, and then, you would so, take them seriously yeah. and not just clamp down and be like... Yeah, no, I wouldn't clamp down. I would say, all right, let's go and experiment with it. Again, so like what I would resist is someone saying, now I just want to do only this. And they say, look, you don't know anything. You know, like it's one thing, you don't know anything about it. You don't know that that's a good idea. And like, it's not reasonable to think that it is. Most people in your position won't, will change their minds. So why don't we just go and be like, like you're interested in that? Let's experiment. Let's try it. Uh, for motorcycle, I probably just veto that on safety reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and just say, okay. look, you know, like, you know, look, you can't, look, I, my kids aren't allowed to be mountain climbers. They can't be motorcyclists. Uh, you know, if you want to go and do that when you're on your own, I can't stop you. But no, I'm not going to approve of being a, a motorcycle rider as a as a, as a as a lifestyle or anything else. Uh, yeah, so you know, to, you know, to me, that's just a matter of like basic prudence and safety. And you know, I, I know some people live hireless lifestyles, but I don't approve of that kind of thing, and I'm not going to subsidize that. Understood. And something I mentioned in the article, and that that really struck me at the end of your book, is that. Uh, in the end, you are a huge proponent of educational consent and that you are concerned about not forcing kids into doing irrelevant activities that don't actually build any skills, mm -hmm. even if they are important for economic signaling. And it seems like you take that approach also with your own kids, uh, maybe with uh, you know certain health and safety risks aside. Uh, and so I think that's something that, that makes your book worth reading for people who are already in the alternative education realm, uh, not only because it mm -hmm. so clearly explains why signaling is important and often more important than we uh, like to believe, uh, but because uh, ultimately you are the, the kind of guy who doesn't want to try to force everyone into the one same system. Uh, you want to give people lots of different options, including going, you know, starting working, going into vocational school, uh, you know, all the different levels of college. Uh, you're not a proponent of everyone must do uh, college prep K through 12 uh, because that's the only way to save themselves and save society. Yeah, I mean, of course not. So, I mean, like, there's many different paths. And, you know, like, what I say in the book is when I'm giving advice to an individual, I, like, my first thing is find out, well, right, well what is it that you want, what is it that you're interested in doing with your life? And then I'll, you know, like, if I know something about it, I like to give, some, give them some feedback about how realistic their options are in light of their abilities. So, and, you know, like, if someone says, I want to open a restaurant, right, well, you wear, like, 90% of restaurants do fail, and like, it's really expensive to do it. So, like, do you know what you're up against? So, you know, just want to do that. I mean, I would say that, I mean, I, like with my own kids, I definitely do advise them to send signals if I think that it's really important, that, that it's, they'd really be hurting themselves they didn't. So, I mean, right now, my kids are doing foreign language. They don't want to do foreign language, and I don't see much value in it either. But I do know that almost every college they want to go to has a foreign language requirement. And I say, all right, well, I guess we're just going to have to suck it up and do this. And, you know, like, you know, of course, we want to make it as constructive an experience as we can. But, again, you know, like, you know, we wouldn't be doing it if the world didn't, uh, didn't go and... Give, and give you these payoffs uh, in exchange for doing it. So you're towing the line between idealist and realist. Yeah, I mean, I have this whole blog post on selective, uh, selective nonconformity, where I say, look, I am a nonconformist by, you know, you know, in spirit, but I also know the world often crushes the nonconformist, and I don't want to get crushed. Um, and so, like, when I'm thinking about what to do, I try to look at the world and say, all right, so do you really get crushed for, for, break, for not doing what you're supposed to do, or not? And you know, sometimes you do get crushed, like if you just refuse to learn a foreign language in high school and then no college will take you. All right, that's right, fine, I'll do it. Then, but there's a lot of other kinds of things like, you know, you can't wear shorts in November. It's like, or what? 
And it's like, well, <laughs> then some strangers that you don't need will laugh at you. And like, you know what? That's cool. Let them laugh. That's fine. Yeah, be nonconformist. So, I mean, like, like my general advice to nonconformists is actually, you know, don't act impulsively. Instead, you know, calm down and just try to pay attention to what happens when someone doesn't conform. And there's some areas of life where it, where they do go and crush your hopes and dreams, and other areas where it's just a bunch of total strangers that you never met disapprove of you silently. And like for that kind of thing, like who cares about them? I don't need them, right? So, you know, you know, a lot of my advice to kids is you know, you know, the really important people to impress. It's not other kids. What do they know? And what and like they don't have any. What do they, well, they don't have a lot of resources to hand out? They're not gatekeepers. No, go and impress teachers, go impress professors, go impress employers. Those are the kinds of people that you want to get in good with. And so like the other stuff, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like, you like worry way less about what your peers think and way more what people who actually are gatekeepers to your dreams uh, care about. So, you know, this is the, you know, like it's kind of a Machiavellian approach, but, you know, like I, I think it's, you know, it's a, you know, again, I'm not saying to go and, and you know, like stab people in the back or anything. I'm just saying like look at <laughs> look around at the world and see whether like see like what kinds of nonconformity will it tolerate and what kinds will it not tolerate and then navigate your path through life accordingly. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show and tell us where we can find your book. Oh, it's uh, you know, my great pleasure to be here. And, yeah, and the book is The Case Against Education. It's only 20 bucks Amazon and I really would recommend it for homeschoolers just to get an idea of what the what options you have and whether you can get away with pursuing your alternative path and in so far as how much you have to go and adjust your plans to reach your dreams i agree get the book thanks brian thank you